go without saying that you really can't be certain about something in your life unless you have the power to control the outcome. Uh, your, your power and your certainty are deeply connected in that sense. I was reminded of this when I was uh, thinking about one of the more hilarious scenes from the first of the Incredibles movies by Pixar. Uh, you know, one of my favorite scenes is where the uh, arch villain at the end of the movie has kidnapped little baby Jack-Jack, only to find out that Jack-Jack has superpowers himself. Well, in the hilarity that ensues, uh, Mrs. Incredible, uh, Elastigirl, uh, is thrown up toward the villain's plane uh, to rescue the baby. Well, once she catches him, uh, you know, she uh, rescues him. How? by turning herself into a parachute and floating gently down with the baby to safety. Well, the problem is uh, that Mr. Incredible, uh, in a fit of rage, has thrown a car up at the villain's airplane, which has exploded into a huge fireball. Well, the camera then cuts to the perspective of little baby Jack-Jack, looking up at his parachute mother, um, and while she's looking down at him, and she's saying, don't worry, everything's going to be okay. But you can see, while she says it, Jack-Jack is looking back up at the giant fireball that is racing down towards them. And I, I, the reason I think that's funny is, is because even little baby Jack-Jack knows that you can say everything's going to be all right as much as you want. But unless you have the power to back that statement up, it's really not certain, is it? Um, we've been looking this year at why it is that Luke thinks that we can find certainty about Jesus. And what we find today is, is we can be certain about who Jesus is because He is powerful. Because He has the power to back up His claims. Not in the sense of like, oh, He had a powerful presence among us, but like a raw, vivid mind-blowing, supernatural power was what Jesus had in this boat with his disciples. And it's the first time they really discover it. So I want to look at this morning under three headings. I want to look, first of all, at the backdrop of the sea, which is important, as you'll find out. Number two, I want to look at the power that Jesus wielded. And number three, see if we can't draw a lesson for ourselves. Okay, so the sea and the power and the lesson. Let's look at the sea. Uh, the sea was a big deal for this to take place on because physical places oftentimes mean more than just the actual physical place, if you think about it. Uh, imagine for a moment that there is a young lady in her early 30s who walks into the grove 10 years after her graduation. She sits at one of the picnic tables there and suddenly she bursts into tears. Why? Well, you see, since she graduated, she's been married. She's had a small child. Her husband has left her, and now she's fending for herself as a single mom. Now, why is she crying? She's not crying because the Grove is a convenient place to have an emotional breakdown. Uh, she's crying because the place has come to mean something for her. It meant to her an innocent time, a, a time when life just wasn't so complicated. My guess is you can relate to that. The Grove has all kinds of emotional reactions to people in this room but which are oftentimes positive. But you do realize that sometimes places themselves can have negative feelings associated with them. I think of the movie uh, Forrest Gump. 
uh, where the heroine in the movie, Jenny, is, happens upon, on a walk, a house that she grew up in, a house full of abuse and, and fear uh, and terror. Well, in a fit of emotion, she races over and grabs rocks and starts throwing them at the house and screaming and crying at them. Why? Well, it's, it's not the planks of wood on the outside of the house that she's angry with, but it's what the house came to represent. Jenny is throwing stones at that moment at her anguish, at her regret, at her shame. And that makes Forrest's comment all that much profound, which is sometimes in life there just aren't enough rocks. Well, if you can wrap your mind what's happening around those two quick examples, you can get a sense of what was in the mind of a Jewish person when they looked out over the sea. You know, for most of us, the ocean and a great lake is sort of a place of placid tranquility. We remember fond times as children of building sandcastles or maybe playing in the waves. Uh, You know, a holiday at an ocean side for most of us is an ideal spot to unwind and sort of uh, recharge our batteries. But you got to understand that Jewish people were not seafaring people at all. As a matter of fact, the sea in general had come to take on in their collective memory something that was really quite bad. Um, if you think about a Jewish person's history at the sea just from the Bible alone, you'll see what I'm talking about. At the creation, God's sort of creative power moved over a dark primal sea. Uh, later on, we find that when the Jews left Egypt, they had to pass literally through a sea uh, in order to be saved. When you get to the Psalms, you'll find over and over again God being spoken of as the God who rules over the raging sea, over its rough and, thre- rough and threatening ways. In Psalm 89, it says, O Lord God Almighty, who is like you, you are mighty, O Lord, and your faithfulness surrounds you. You rule over the surging sea when its waves mount up. You still them. Hmm. Jonah, of course, when he's running from God, sailing in the wrong direction, was brought, by, brought through a great storm that only finally calmed when, at his suggestion, they throw him over the side. And then finally, in books like Daniel, you get prophecies which are actually mirrored in the book of Revelation that all these monsters are going to show up. And guess where they come from? The sea. <laughs> In other words, the sea came to symbolize for a Jewish person the dark powers of evil. These things that were threatening to destroy God's good creation. In my efforts to try to illustrate this this week, I started wondering if if it's something like the fear that mail carriers have about dogs. I imagine you could probably tell a mail carrier that indeed not every dog is going to chase you and bite you. But after sort of a personal history of, uh, that included one too many attacks, as a group of people, you just don't like dogs. That's what happened with the sea with these Jewish people. In other words, the, the disciples' terror at being caught at this moment of fear was happening in a place where they would have expected it to happen. I knew this would happen. I hate being out here. And you hear the intensity of their fear, by the way. Uh, notice how they say, master, master. You do know that's the Bible's way of expressing emotion. Uh, from the earliest of... Te- we don't have early textual writings where we can put things in italics or bold or underline. Um, and so in order to show emphasis or emotion, ancient Near Eastern writers would just repeat the word. Uh, King David, uh, when he lost his son, says, Absalom, Absalom. Um, Saul, when Jesus confronts him on the way, says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
In other words, the disciples are freaking out. There's a lot of emotion behind all this. In other words, you get them standing in front of the face of the very thing that that, that was the source of impotence. They knew they were powerless. They were vulnerable. They were out of control in the chaos of the sea. One last point. In Revelation 21, there's a prediction when, when the writer begins to describe the new heavens and the new earth, that in that place there will be no sea, which is kind of a downer for those of us that love the idea of an ocean vacation. But I don't think they mean that there will be no large bodies of water in the new heavens and the new earth. I think what it means is, is in that place there will be no chaos. There'll be no fear. There'll be no powerlessness in that place. Look, so Jesus is showing up in these disciples' life at a time of deep emotional instability. They're coming apart. And it occurred to me as I read this, is there anyone here who can't relate to that? We all know what this is like. Are there certain places where when you wander into, just bad stuff comes out? Um, Some of you, it may be comical. I can imagine, you know, your mother uh, sort of going up to your siblings and saying, look, do not ask your father to help you with math. Ever since he failed that exam in Algebra 2 in high school, uh, he just can't stand to look at it, so stay away from him. For others of you, it's actually not funny at all. Uh, Psychologists are actually noting that you can actually re-traumatize and re-experience anguish just by going to the location where that anguish took place. Uh, I was watching on the History Channel a couple of weeks ago uh, uh, the series called The Pacific, which talked about the World War II campaign in the South Seas. And I was only taking in the last episode where it was describing what it was like for these soldiers to return home after the nightmare of that experience. Well, as you can imagine, their transition back into normal life was, for many times, incredibly hard. Um, One of the storylines in the episode showed one man who returned to his home in Mobile, Alabama, and he was having an awful time trying to acclimate back into normal life. Well, one day he goes out on a hunting trip with his father. And as soon as his father reaches into the back of the car and grabs his gun, just a few steps into the woods, grasping a gun causes this huge emotional breakdown. The man collapses on the floor and begins to weep uncontrollably. The memories are just too hard to take in some sense. Look, here's the point. We are not only wounded by the brokenness of the world, but we are wounded in the places where those very things happened. They might even still be tyrannizing you this morning. I worry about in some ways that some people might experience that when they walk into these doors. Churches themselves can be places of trauma. Um, and, And it also occurs to me that even the symbols surrounding those places can be traumatizing. I mean, let's take, for instance, do you think a World War II veteran thinks it's simply an expression of free speech when he sees a swastika brandished by a young protester? Hmm. Or maybe what does it mean for a Confederate flag to be brought up, uh, and what does that do in the heart of a young African American in the South today? Look, here's the point. We all have places, we all have symbols that threaten to overtake us, and it feels like our life is about to capsize. We all know what that is. What are those places for you? 
What are those things for you? Because if you understand those, you might understand the fear these disciples face while they're on the sea. That brings me to the second point, and that is the power that Jesus brandishes at this moment. Look, did you read verse 24? Did it occur to you just how embarrassing uh, that thing is in its minimalism? (laughs) You know, Jesus woke up, he screams at the ocean, and boom, it's completely calm. You know, he could have stood up and said, hey, 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 chill out, watch this. You know, kind of rolled up his sleeves, you know, maybe whipped out sort of a, a magic wand and waved it around and made it all go away. No, it's as if Jesus, like, lifts the pinky finger of his power. And he just flexes and says, quiet. The text is suggesting that this was nothing for him. Nothing for him to do so. Had he said, be still, and then slowly things kind of dwindled down, that might be a coincidence. But this is an audacious claim that we're making that honestly is showing that there was an instantaneous calm in the midst of a raging storm. Why is this audacious? Well, because throughout the Old Testament, you find that when the writers talk about the sea, they say that only God is able to calm the sea. Psalm 29 says, the Lord sits enthroned above the flood. So here's your theological question for the morning. Why is it that God alone is the one who is able to stop the flood? Yes, he's powerful, but the answer to that question, I think, is more subtle than that. God alone is able to store, to sort of calm the storm because the Lord is the one who is doing all the thundering in the first place. Any display of power that we see in the universe that moves us is a display that is on loan from Him. Whether it's a mid-summer thunderstorm or a Gulf of Mexico swallowing hurricane, all of those displays When we see awe-inspiring power in the world, it is on loan from His hand. Jesus is saying, look, I am not just one who comes with power. I am the power from which all other things derive their power. And the disciples begin to reel by wrapping their minds around it. I mean, the only way in which Jesus could command the sea of all things to do what He wants it to do is if He is the Lord of the sea in the first place. So for the first time, they begin to see that the Lord has to be the powerful force over all of their darkest fears. Luke 8 is a powerful claim to Jesus' divinity. A straight-up claim that He was who He said He was as being the cosmic sustainer of all things. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says this, The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, listen to this, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. (laughs) The only reason why the molecules are holding together in your body right now is because Jesus is telling them to do so. He's the cosmic sustainer of all things. Like, I realize that we have to stress the nearness of Jesus in our affliction. But it needs to be balanced with the fact that there is a fear and an awe that comes when you realize what kind of power He has. I heard one pastor quote from Annie Dillard in her book, Teaching a Stone, a Stone to Talk. And I looked up the reference and she says this. She says, does anyone have the foggiest idea of what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? 
The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should come to church wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may yet awake someday and take offense. Or the waking God may draw us to where we can never return. Look, one, one small point before we move on to the next last point. In verse 22, we find something fascinating because we see that it was Jesus' idea to get into the boat in the first place. Hmm. He's the one who led them into this experience. And there he is asleep, again, because probably he's sleeping peacefully because he's the one who's telling the wind to blow in the first place. That's why he can be peaceful. But I realize that when we begin to assert things like this, a lot of people have difficulty with the idea that God is sovereign in control over every single thing that happens. But I think it's going to help you to know that the theological tradition upon which this church stands has always found it very important to establish the absolute sovereignty of God over all things, including the bad things that happen in our lives. Mind you, there's no joy or glibness surrounding this conviction, especially when it involves people being hurt. But there's been a conviction that no matter what the purposes of God are for allowing the evil that He does to come about in the world, by the way, which He is under no obligation to explain to me, it really doesn't do any good to suddenly jettison Him from these events and leave us without the very thing that we need to survive life storms. That is the knowledge of His close, powerful presence. Look, so it bears repeating, there is nothing in Christianity that states that coming to Christ means that you'll have no more storms. Jesus was the architect of the entire episode. It was His idea to go. His disciples were following Him, and suddenly their lives were falling apart. So don't be surprised when your life looks exactly the same way. The answer to the question, though, of why God would allow that is the last point. So what's the lesson? We see the sea. We see Jesus' power. What's the lesson to be drawn from this? Well, Jesus gives it to us in verse 25. He looks at him and he rebukes him and he says, Where is your faith? Aha! There's that word again. I told you we'd be preoccupied with this for a while. But notice, there are two ways to take Jesus' question. On the one hand, he could be saying, where is your faith? It's gone. You don't have any. You have none left. But then again, he could be saying, because it makes just as much sense to say so, say so, where is your faith? Because it's misplaced. That is, your fear of the waves around you is revealing that your faith has been put into something that cannot sustain you in this moment. Where is it gone? The more you dive into this, you're going to find out that those are actually the exact same things. (laughs) Faith in something that can't save you is the same thing as no faith at all. That's why Jesus came and asked the question. So again, we're going to look at it one more time. What is faith? What we've been saying in these weeks in the past is that faith has got to be more about its object than about its substance. Faith is not trying harder to believe or striving to sort of work myself up into a feeling state that is marked by the absence of doubt. 
But faith, rather, is the activity of finding something fascinating, of finding something lovely, of finding something terrifying, and then reasoning with oneself about the evidence that calls for a response and trust. That's faith. Jesus states that their fear of the storm and their fear for their lives would not have been present had they known who was in the boat with them. So Jesus puts on a display of His majesty to get us to be intrigued by Him. In other words, they're invitations to rest in Him. Um, He passed away this year, but R.C. Sproul uh, had a sermon that I listened to about years ago on this very topic. When he talked about the transfer of fear in the disciples, it's a little bit funny. Because at the beginning of the, of the story, the disciples are, are gripped with fear over the storm and over the stuff that's raging. But by the end of the story, they're realizing that the storm was nothing compared to the person they had in the boat with them. That was something that was worth being afraid of. Look, every time people encounter God in the Bible, it's not a peaceful, easy feeling. Moses hit the deck when God confronted him in the fury of the fire. Of course the disciples are trembling. They're trembling because they have seen the Holy One. The fury of the water, the glory of God begins to be made manifest to them. And they're more terrified of Him than they were of the storm. And that's exactly where Jesus wants them to be. Look, here's the point. You just haven't met this God until He has shaken you. He's not a God that you can come to casually. It's just not possible. Look, the Old Testament writers referred to this sensation as something called the fear of the Lord. It's a theme that's brought up constantly. And look, this can be a very hard fact to face. But sometimes, the help that God is bringing to us, that is, what He's putting you through to get you through the problems you're facing, is oftentimes more terrifying than the problems themselves. So don't be surprised that God meets you in the most disturbing, hard times in your life. Look, this room is big. (laughs) There's way too many stories here to not realize that there are probably some soul-crushing stories in this room. But look, and, and my goal is not to make any light of that situation, but to have you ask a question. That is it possible, even at the height of your heartbreak, that maybe praying earnestly, for relief from your circumstances, may not be the best route through it. What if the purpose of my present hurt is not to punish me? We actually know that can't be the reason for our hurt. But but nor is it to sort of teach you how to get through it all so you can write an inspirational, you know, uh, uh, best-selling self-help book about it. But what if rather the purpose of my hurt... (laughs) is to get to know Him, to get lost in His power, to to leave the matter to Him, to sort of resign myself in a calm knowing that I am in the hands of Him who rides upon the storm and commands its terror. So in the end, secondly, it means that our faith is not just about Him more than it is about us, but it means that our faith is about the fascination that we find in Him. The disciples look up and what do they say? Who is this? (laughs) Indeed, who is this? 
Jesus has begun to fascinate them. He's begun to draw them in. So in the end, sort of working harder at faith is not what develops faith. Looking harder at Jesus is what changes you into what God wants you to be. The more amazing He becomes in my eyes, the greater is my faith. But what's awesome about this is you and I actually are at a much better advantage, are we not? Because you and I realize that this man who stilled the storm faced a storm himself. As a matter of fact, Jesus, just months after this event, would go and stand before the face of the storm of His Father's justice against sin. Folks, Jesus bowed His head into the storm of justice that really, when it comes down to it, is the only storm that really matters. And in that moment, He did that so that He could give us a power greater than we could imagine, which is access to the one who is commanding the waves around us, to go boldly in front of Him. And it all happened because of a dreadful encounter when we understood the fear of the Lord. Let me close with this. In his book, The Pleasures of God, uh, John Piper tells a a story about his description of of the fear of God, this Old Testament fear of God. And he does so by asking his readers to imagine that they were caught in a terrible storm uh, exploring an Arctic glacier. John Piper, whatever. But when you're exploring through this area, you know, there's a storm that starts to build. And it's so strong that you begin to fear that you're going to be blown right over a cliff. But you discover as you're going through a little cleft, an opening as it were, in the ice where you can tuck into and you can hide and find shelter. Even though you're safe, you're standing in there watching the storm go past in what Piper refers to as a trembling pleasure. Listen to what he says. He says, at first there was the fear that this terrible storm and awesome terrain might claim your life, that you might not survive this. But then you found a refuge and you gained the hope that you would be safe. But not everything in the feeling called fear vanished from your heart. Only the life-threatening part. There remained the trembling, the awe, the wonder, the feeling that you would never want to tangle with such a storm or the be the adversary of the one who wielded that power. Listen to this. The fear of God is what is left of the storm when you have found a safe place to watch right in the middle of it. Oh, the thrill of being here in the center of the awful power of God and yet protected by God Himself. That's the fear of the Lord that the disciples attained to on that fateful night. So what's the lesson for us? It's that coming to Jesus means that there is great fear and great terror and great joy. Great joy because we finally found the real power to change, to grow, to love. But great terror because we serve a God who cannot, who will not be trifled with. Anybody up to that challenge? Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, it's only by Your Spirit that You will make us up to these challenges. Father, there are people in this room who even now have not pictured the things going on in their life in terms of a storm. But using that imagery, they're feeling it. Lord, would you meet them in this place? 
Would you draw near to them and let them be assured that there is no power that is at work in the universe that is not directly under your thumb, that you are leading, that you are guiding, that you are gentle and you are good, and all in the midst of a package that is wrapped in a jaw-dropping fear. Lord, hide us in the cleft this morning. Draw us close to Jesus as we sing. Draw us near to Him so that we might know that we have, been, have, have passed the storm because You have loved us in Him. For we ask it all in Jesus' name.